Hello, welcome to the Positive Energy Podcast. I'm your host, Ian T.D. Thompson. The Positive Energy Podcast is the official podcast of the University of Ottawa's Positive Energy Initiative. The initiative seeks to strengthen public confidence in Canadian energy policy, regulation, and decision-making through evidence-based research and analysis, engagement, and recommendations for action. Today on the program, we are talking with Dr. Stephen Bird of Clarkson University and Dr. Eric LaChapelle of the Université de Montréal, both faculty members of the Positive Energy Initiative. In the last quarter of 2019, Positive Energy released survey work examining energy polarization in Canada. The work, produced by Dr. Stephen Bird and Dr. Eric LaChapelle, aims to understand the nature and drivers of polarization taking place with energy and climate issues. It surveyed Canadians' perception on several key energy policies, such as carbon pricing, pipelines, and the energy transition. The survey also assessed these differences in opinion across unique groupings, including political affiliation, region, and age. To talk more about the survey work and what it all means for Canada's energy future is Professor Stephen Bird and Professor Eric LaChapelle. Dr. Stephen Bird is an Associate Professor of Political Science at Clarkson University. Dr. Eric LaChapelle is an Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science at Université de Montréal. Both are faculty members of the Positive Energy Initiative. Stephen, Eric, thank you for joining us. Thanks. Great. Thanks. Stephen, to start us off, in your own words, what was the motivation and objectives for the study and for the survey work? So Positive Energy had been doing work already with Nick Nanos, doing a leadership profile, not a full survey, but what we call a panel, and then national-level survey work that looked at energy issues in Canada overall. But One of the things we found is that that survey work didn't get at a couple of issues that we thought were really important. One was its association with political parties or party affiliation, and also being able to dig a little bit deeper into other aspects. So region, age, kind of place that you live, the kinds of values that people have. These were all aspects that Nanos' survey work couldn't get to in, in as much detail. And so our hope was to add that to the table and secondarily to start specifically developing and looking at questions that measure polarization, which we'll define in just a couple minutes, and which is not necessarily where Nick's work. So Nick's work was really looking at general public opinion on energy issues overall, and we really wanted to explore the ways in which Canadians might be polarized and might be polarizing status and process. Okay. Eric, and with that in mind, you know, we're talking about the purpose of the survey being a little bit more to get into the heart of why polarization exists. What makes the current polarization observed in Canadian energy and climate policy unique? Yeah, so I'm going to push back on that a bit okay. and say that the uh, we'll get to the definition of polarization, as Stephen said. So we want to we really want to sort that out. One of the things we wanted to do with the surveys, first of all, to assess to what extent is the public opinion in Canada polarized, period. Because there's a lot of talk around uh, in the media and pundits and that sort of a thing. And we have kind of sort of anecdotal evidence. And every once in a while you get a poll showing 
or suggesting that opinions are polarized in Canada. So we really just kind of, I think the first thing is, you know, what is the state of public opinion during the, so we polled during the election campaign, what was the state of public opinion in the 2019 federal election campaign? And so I think the, the primary or one of the objectives for me anyway was to kind of just get, set a benchmark and to assess to what extent can we characterize the Canadian public as being polarized or not or something else. And so I think that's important to say that we're, we didn't go in looking for polarization. We went in saying, well, what does the opinion landscape look like? And why this is unique, I think, is oftentimes you'll have surveys looking specifically at energy or a specific kind of energy. Other surveys that I've done in the past look more at climate change and environmental issues. It's rare that you look at these two things together, although obviously they're related, right? Climate change is fundamentally an energy problem um, or an energy production problem. And so I think what really makes this unique is what we're going to be looking across a broad range of energy sectors and in conjunction with climate change attitudes and climate change public opinion, where does the public stand on these very difficult, complicated question. Mm-hmm. Stephen, you mentioned this idea of the you know the purpose of the survey being to get a little bit more to the heart of these matters of polarization. I want to jump into the methods a little bit, because I think that's the linchpin to understanding polarization and how that was actually measured. Eric, could you give us maybe a brief description of how the survey was conducted, as well as you know, how polarization was measured and observed on these issues? Yeah, so Stephen can help me maybe fill in the blanks, but we contracted with Qualtrics to administer our survey to a panel of Canadians, 2,600 and some, with at least 500 respondents in five of the major regions across the country. So the Atlantic Canada constitutes one of the regions, Quebec was a region, Ontario, the Prairies, and British Columbia. And so we wanted, you know, to have a significant number of respondents in each of those regions, notably to we anticipated potential division in in terms of opinions on on these matters across those areas. So we wanted sufficient sample size. It was an online survey conducted over the election campaign. So I think those are really important things we, we might want to discuss or they're important to point out. Now, in terms of how we once we collected the data, we started looking at it through this particular lens where we wanted to look at, we wanted to kind of look at on what questions is there agreement or mostly agreement, on what questions is there disagreement, and on what questions might we characterize public opinion as being polarized. And this, you know, there was a lot of back and forth, a lot of thinking, and, and we came up with this idea, and, you know, this isn't terribly new, but I think it's important because a lot of people throw around the term polarization without really thinking about what it actually means. In our, uh, in our view, we came down on this as saying polarization is a process. It's something that's dynamic, and it implies movement towards the extremes, right? We can think of a radicalization of opinion or a hardening of views, you know, people moving towards strongly agreeing or strongly disagreeing, that is indicative or or that is a characteristic of polarization. Now, because our our survey is only a snapshot in time, we're not really talking about polarization. We'll be able to talk about polarization in subsequent work, but right now we're looking at 
what the distribution of opinion is at this particular moment in time or at the, at the moment in time in which the survey was conducted. And here we have that distinction where polarized opinion is opinion where you have considerable, you have a clustering of opinion on the extremes or on one of the extremes, either strongly agreement or strongly opposed, which we think is different from fragmented or mixed opinion, which is not necessarily clustered at the extremes, but it's more like in the mushy middle. You know, some people might slightly disagree or might disagree without strongly disagreeing. Or, or And so we think that's an important distinction to move the conversation on these complex and controversial issues in this country, because a lot of times people talk about polarization when in fact that's not, in fact, the case. Mm -hmm. And I think what's really interesting about your work compared to what's currently being discussed in the, the general media landscape is that it moves it away from kind of a more rhetorical sort of idea of what polarization looks at. And when you look at the actual work, you can visually see, based on the survey work, what a polarized policy issue looks like. It looks like, and correct me if I'm wrong, it looks like a U, a U shape, or if to kind of to sum it up visually. And I think that actually is a really important important, really cool element to the work that you're doing. Stephen, is there anything you'd like to add regarding that? Well, the only thing that I would add is that when we think about opinion and agreement, that can be across a range. So you can have opinion and agreement that looks like a bell curve where sort of everybody is in the middle. And that oftentimes in sort of classic public opinion analysis, that oftentimes was what you would expect to see most of the time. But you can also have opinion and agreement where everybody really agrees that we should change or we should, or everybody really agrees that we should stay exactly where we are. So that opinion and agreement can cross a range of expression, but it's really about seeing the bulk of respondents in one area or another along a scale um, in terms of responding to the question. That's a good point, Stephen. Another way of looking at it or thinking about it, more of a, I guess, a techie or geeky way of looking at it is, or nerdy, is multimodal distribution is more fragmented unimodal distribution is more in agreement, as Stephen was saying, either in the middle, on the agree or on the disagree. And then the bimodal distribution might be indicative of polarization, especially if it's at the extremes. Eric, you had mentioned one of the caveats to the survey work was the fact that this survey work was conducted prior to the 2019 federal election. How do you think that this impacted the survey results that we see? That's a really good question. So I think we wanted to do it during the election campaign to kind of pick up any of the where Canadians stood on these issues during an election campaign where in the environment, to a lesser extent, energy. But energy was actually uh, quite a bit a part of the, you know, some of the debates and mm -hmm, some of the proposals. Mm -hmm. So many of these issues were politicized during the time we were in field. And I think that's both a strength and some case, in some ways a limitation. It's a strength in the sense that we can see how these issues were thought about during a very important historic election. At the same time, if you're going to find polarized opinion, you're going to find it during an election campaign when these issues are being politicized. So to some extent, we need to take these results with a grain of salt because we might be finding a polarized opinion where in a non-electoral context where people aren't getting the signals from political elites, they might actually be a little bit 
softer in their views. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the elites, and this survey measured perception of elites and political tolerance. While the good news is Canadians claim to be tolerant of other political opinions that differ from their own, there's a greater divide between Canadians and their perception of elites and powerful decision makers. Stephen, what does this rift mean for decision makers who may be in positions to shape energy or climate policy? Well, so it, it exemplifies a problem that we're seeing in Western democracies everywhere, and it's certainly occurring in Canada, which is there are real concerns about decision makers and the level of trust in government overall that I think these questions are indicative of. Uh, and there are real concerns that the political system is not representing or going through a process that is helpful for the normal or average Canadian. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's a real challenge, right, for, and this is regardless of what political party you're from, this is a perception overall that decision makers right now are not in some way, shape, or form able to address key problems or concerns and that they're not always necessarily even doing it for the benefit of the country. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a fundamental problem for democracy overall. And in terms of energy and climate policy, particularly with the complexity surrounding it, the challenge here is that decision makers have a lot of work to do to bring the public trust back into the decision-making process over these issues. Mm-hmm. What I found interesting, and you mentioned at the beginning where Nanos is survey opinion research kind of fits in with all of this. But the Nanos survey work showed that elites are supportive of a carbon tax. But then your work conversely showed obvious rifts in the general public on this topic among political party, region of the country, as well as community type. You know, large cities support it versus uh, rural communities that do not support a carbon tax. Can you comment on this difference between elite support and general public divisiveness with the carbon tax? Sure. So I think one of the challenges that what we see, so the reminder here always is that climate change costs us money. Mm -hmm. Costs are typically invisible much of the time and they're long term and they're global in nature as opposed to specific in nature. And so the challenge is, is a carbon tax is a policy mechanism that's designed to address those costs and to essentially inculcate the costs into the usage of the energy as you use it. But that particular mechanism has different impacts on different kinds of people and different regions of the country. And I think one of the big stories in Canadian energy and environmental issues is the notion of what we might think of as a regional profile in energy production. And there are really distinct differences in Canada. And so when you start taking a look or thinking through what the reasons are for people's divisiveness on something like a carbon tax, a lot of it's going to have to do with the kind of costs that they may or may not have to pay and the differentials in those costs. And so the challenge there is coming up with a policy that's perceived of as fair by radically different economic systems and radically different regional energy profiles. And that, I think, is exemplified in our research Mm -hmm. uh, and and shown. Eric, is there anything you'd like to add regarding this big significant difference between elite support of a carbon tax versus the general support of uh, the carbon tax? Yeah, I think Stephen made a, a number of really good points. The issue of cost is really important and the saliency of costs. 
this is a long-standing problem in uh, I, I've looked at carbon taxes for a long time and you know you have basically this expert or elite consensus on this being a really good policy idea for the reasons you mentioned right it's putting a price on the external costs but when it comes down to the level of you know getting political buy-in or political support it's it's difficult because people don't want to uh, absorb these costs necessarily and these costs are, are differentially distributed across the population Stephen mentioned the fact that some provinces are, are much more greenhouse gas intensive or carbon intensive and uh, they will be disproportionately affected by any of these pricing mechanisms and I think that's huge at the same time I do think that we've seen a lot of movement in the recent past, but if you look historically, uh, support for a carbon tax has increased over time. In this poll, including in this poll, we find more support than opposition for a carbon tax. That's at the aggregate level, but nevertheless, I think that's significant that people seem to be maybe warming up to the carbon tax. In some instances, it's become normalized. That doesn't mean that everybody's warm to a carbon tax. Clearly, there's elements of polarization or the public is polarized. Certain elements of the public is polarized on this issue. And I think that really comes out nicely in our survey work. But at the same time, I think it's important to understand the historical evolution of public opinion on this question, how support has increased over time. And I think that's really interesting and, and really something to keep in mind when, when talking about the politics of carbon pricing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not just kind of this snapshot picture, but rather how has the policy and the support for the policy kind of shifted, and in this case, increased over time. And as you said, kind of get normalized in the general public. I find it interesting that even in Alberta, the Kenny government has a carbon tax actually in place, at least for high emitting industry polluters. So again, that idea of the carbon tax sticking around and having some level of support, even in a specific area, is quite interesting. So the carbon tax wasn't the only issue that the survey work examined the perceptions on. You looked at general public opinion on pipeline policy, the energy transition, and the current energy mix, support for renewables, just to name a few. And these policy topics, you observe these opinions and their respective divisiveness, consensus across, we've been talking about regions of the country, party affiliation, as well as age groups. Stephen, let's begin with you. What do you see as the big takeaways with the results? There's a lot to unpack here, but what are some big takeaways from this? A couple that I'll just mention off the cuff. One was that we were, I think, as we did this work, we weren't even focused on dividing this into sort of three areas of polarized public opinion and opinion and agreement. And then, you know, a really emergent issue that came out was this, what we're calling fragmented opinion. And there's actually a fair amount of our results that demonstrate that opinion is fragmented, even as we break it down by age or by party or by region. The other issue is that there are some areas that are, there's some clear agreement, there's some consensus. In particular, There is this idea that we can pursue fossil fuel development and maintain our climate obligations in tandem, and there's some moderate support overall for that, and it's less polarized. Mm -hmm. There's extremely strong consensus across the board in really virtually every area that renewables are an important part of our future. There's an emerging consensus about the speed of transition, and even when we distinguish between people who want to be aggressive about it and those less so. And there were some surprising results in lack of uh, clear direction 
on the role of nuclear energy, which frankly surprised me. I can't speak for Eric on this. And then lastly, we see extremely polarized results pretty much across the board when we talk about political parties, which is something the nano survey, survey works. So we, we looked at parties and their voter affiliation. This is not surprising, right? The whole role of parties is to differentiate political ideas. But boy, that's, that's where you see the areas of disagreement at their most polarized, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. at their highest level. So, so those are some of the, the big picture stuff. Eric, is there anything you'd like to add regarding that big picture element to the survey work? Yeah, I think it's easy to look at these data and say and look for the, you know, the the sensitive areas or the controversies. And that's kind of our I think we're biased or hardwired to look for the negative and for the positive. I want to underscore some of the positives that come out of this. And the first one is it's not all about regional fragmentation. Regional fragmentation is limited. Again, even in the context of a highly divisive electoral campaign, we find majority support for more renewable energy, even if it raises the cost of electricity for business and government and consumers, and that was the question wording, across all regions of the country. Across all regions, including Quebec, we find huge support, majority support, for investing more tax dollars into retaining workers who may lose their jobs as the country addresses climate change. Uh, and, and here we're thinking in particular of the prairies. So we mm-hmm. often paint a picture of Quebec versus Alberta, and, yeah. and there's a lot of you know, if you read the blogs, and you know, I, I'm at the University of Montreal, and sometimes, you know, it's, it's painful reading some of the Quebec bashing and vice versa, some of the Alberta bashing that you hear. And I just think that's really not productive in terms of the conversation and that there's a lot of sympathy across the country, including in Quebec, for people in Alberta that in terms of having to square this circle, right? And, and I, I do think that some of that comes out of these data. Uh, we also see lots of support and majority support and huge, quite significant significant majority support for the idea that the federal government needs a long-term strategy and vision for energy in Canada and that they can play a role in how energy resources are developed, which, you know, isn't necessarily their constitutional role, but there's this idea that the federal government has a role to play in terms of structuring or at least having a say in the the long-term energy vision of this country. I think this is hugely positive because this is actually, these are the conversations that need to happen right now. You've been listening to the Positive Energy Podcast. For more information on the survey work discussed, please visit the Positive Energy website. Today's episode was produced by myself, Ian T.D. Thompson.